Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. Coming to us out of the sky, the familiar voice of radio brings endless hours of entertainment, information, and cheer. Today's sound is designed to suit you. Entertainment. Like to hear more? Oh, may we? Hey, listen, I have a record I want you to play. What you got, Holmes? It is a rare, one-of-a-kind original pressing. I just want to hear the music, that's all. Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay? Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not going to put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? What does it all mean? I don't know. Who is Charlie Parker? Yes! Sounds Visual is a music podcast with an emphasis on jazz, funk, soul, and hip-hop. You are tuned in to Sounds Visual Radio. My name is Justin. Thanks for being here. My guest on this week's episode of the podcast is Mike Nock. Mike Nock is a distinguished pianist, composer, band leader, and jazz educator who began his illustrious journey from New Zealand to Australia in the late 1950s, swiftly gaining prominence in the vibrant jazz scenes of Sydney and Melbourne. Nock's career took flight with his initial recordings as part of the Three Out Trio in Australia from 1960 to 1961. He later ventured to the UK, gracing prestigious London jazz venues, and then secured a scholarship to study at the Berklee College of Music in the United States. Over the course of his career, he went on to collaborate and play alongside a diverse array of legendary artists, including Dionne Warwick, Coleman Hawkins, Yusef Latif, The Jazz Messengers, John Handy, and Lionel Hampton, just to name a few. During the late 60s, Nock also founded the groundbreaking ensemble, The Fourth Way. Nock's exceptional talents have garnered numerous awards, including the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2003, multiple USA National Endowment Awards for Composition, the New Zealand Jazz Record of the Year, and Australian Critics Awards. And in 2014, he was awarded the Don Banks Music Award, the most valuable individual music award in Australia. In 2010, a biography chronicling Mike Knox's life and career was published entitled, Serious Fun, The Life and Music of Mike Knox. 
His career has continued to span a broad range of contemporary musical styles, including orchestral music, woodwind and percussion ensembles, electronic, and choral works. All right, let's hop across the world to Sydney, Australia, and talk to pianist, composer, and band leader, Mike Nock, who was kind enough to join me for a conversation on his 83rd birthday. Mike, where does the journey start for you? Well, actually, my start point was in a town called Narawahia, New Zealand, which is a way, you know, it's a, it's a small town of about 1,200 people, or 2,000 people at the time. This is a long time ago. And my father, we, we, we didn't even have a piano or anything like that, but my father's sister dumped, dumped her piano at our house. And he was a pianist. I didn't know this. Like, it's just a, a party pianist. And so uh, he, he started playing, and I, I wanted to play like that. I wanted to play. So he started teaching me out of a book called The Art Chef Piano Method. Now, it's an American book, but uh, so I don't know how the hell we came, came across it, but that was it, The Art Chef Piano Music. And it was basically, so basically, and he died not long after we started taking lessons. So basically, after about six weeks, I was on my own and couldn't find it. So I just basically taught myself. The thing about the art chef was it showed you chords. Chords, I didn't know anything about scales, but it had chords. So you learned Swanee River, way, way up on the Swanee River, and things like that with the chords, major and major and, and really simple chords, but it had the chords and the melody. That's, and that, that's, that's the basis of the jazz thing. So anyway, you know, that's what I knew. That's how I learned how to play music was, was just that thing. I got a bunch of local kids together, and we had a band. You know, I, we didn't know anything about anything, but one of the kids could play the cornet, and he could play a B-flat scale, and another kid had a couple of chords he could play on the guitar. And, and, and you know, do you remember a band called Spike Jones and the City Slickers? Well, they were my big inspiration. <laughs> we just made all these sounds up. You know, we'd have anyone had any kind of sound creating thing. We just played it and we made up our own music. We didn't know what the fucking song was, but we were, because we couldn't do anything else. But we wanted to play music. And that was the beginning of it all. I'd like to address the fact, man, I've been part of this music for a long, long time in a way that very few people have been, because of, partly because of the fact that I am from this part of the world is one of the things. And, and another thing is because I'm a, I'm a white guy from New Zealand, I got accepted in the black community very early on. So, Mike, by your late teens, you had moved to Australia, right? That's right. That's By that time, I made the, the trip, as we call it here, across the ditch to Sydney, Australia. And, and uh, you know, that's when it really started started happening. I, I, when I came to Australia, very quickly, I don't know how this happened exactly. I mean, well, was my, I, I'd grown up with jazz, jazz music. I mean, the first jazz I ever heard that I really liked was jazz at Massey Hall. And I was only about 12 at the time, 11 or 12, something like that. And I thought it was a, I thought it was a local band. That's how, that's how, I just heard it on the radio. 
thought, oh, this is how the guys are playing in Auckland, you know, or whatever. And I loved it. I loved it. And then you eventually started playing in a jazz trio in Australia called The Three Out. Well, what happens is this guy, this Dutch guy, actually, Freddie Logan, had a little band. I mean, he was actually quite a mover and a shaker. He was a bit older than me. Maybe he might have been five years older than me. And uh, he, he, he heard me play and he liked what I was playing. I mean, I was, I was already playing a few little gigs, you know. And, he liked, and, and so he got, he got this little trio together where we got this drummer called Chris Karen. Now, Chris, this wouldn't mean much to you, but Chris ended up going to, and he said, we're still in touch, me and Chris. Freddie's dead, but Chris ended up working with a guy called Dudley Moore. Well, anyway, so that's, that's what Chris ended up at one point working with Dudley Moore. So there's all these, look, and this is one of the things that's been coming up to me just recently. I'm not so sure why this is, but just how connected I am to so much of the scene. And people, no one knows about it because it's just that it just was the way it was in those days. Some early work here from pianist Mike Nock working with the Australian jazz trio The Three Out, who released their debut record in 1960 on Columbia called Move. We did our first, like Freddie had, he was a mover and a shaker, as I said. And so he got he got us to do this little recording. And I could, I, to be really honest, I could hardly play. I mean, obviously I had some shit, you know, but I, I mean, I'm, one of the songs that we played is, is a thing on 5-4. Now, I was so green and so ignorant. The only way I could play on 5-4 was to use my fingers and just kind of let them hit, hit the side of the keyboard, like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3. <laughs> but, but anyway, so, so that's what happened. So we, and the first record became a hit, a minor hit. It was one of the best-selling records I did for years after that. I don't even know why. It just it caught people's imagination down on that and a matter of fact it's been re-released recently in the last few years it was released on cd in in, uh, germany mike when you were with the three out trio in australia you guys actually got to share a bill with tenor saxophonist coleman hawkins so tell me about meeting hawk things happen i gotta say one thing back in those days things happened really fast really fast and, and, and a very compressed amount of time. And I had this trio, the three-hour trio, and we were the hot trio, and this American uh, uh, entrep- entrepreneur called Lee Gordon was living in Australia. A bit of a strange cat, but, but he did a lot for the scene. And he got this idea to have this huge jazz festival. And it was like Dizzy Gillespie, Sarah Vaughan, I mean, you know, Dakota State, and I mean, I could go to all these, and we were on the bill as, as my trio. We only played stadiums. I mean, huge football stadiums. <laughs> this is back in 1960, before I came to the States. 
And it's like, fuck, you know? That's why I had to leave. I said, man, I'm, I'm at the top too soon. You know, I, I need to learn how to play. And and the things I did, I toured with Hawkins at that time because he was also on the bill. Now, we didn't play, but he, we just hooked up. I'm not sure why. I felt he was like my dad, my father, because my father died quite young. And I just had a thing. I just really liked Coleman. And we, he was a lovely man. And I, I worked with him a little bit when he came back with, with, later on in the, at the States, at Lenny's in the Turnpike, believe it or not. In 1961, Mike left Australia, originally bound for England, and then the United States. I left because I realized I'd hit the top. I was only a kid. I was 18. And I said, man, if I've got this kind of success at this stage in my life, and all I wanted to do was learn how to, I wanted to learn how to play the music better. You know, and I said, man, I better get out of here. And so the guys organized this little trip on a, on a boat to England. So we took it, we got a free trip on a boat to, as long, all we had to do was play and we could just play our own music on a boat, a big ship. And we went from, from Sydney to, uh, uh, actually to Greece first and we went overland to England. And Freddie had all kinds of connections in England. So Freddie was able to organize a tour for us around um, Europe. But at this point, I wanted to go to the States. I wanted to play with the cats. <laughs> it's all a bit of a blur those days. But the thing is, I got a, I got a, I, I, I was, was my main thing was I wanted to go. Now, I had, a, I had a scholarship to Berkeley. So I was able to get into the States as a student. But the scholarship was only for like, I thought it was a fortune. It was about $3,000. Can you believe that? A $3,000 scholarship. <laughs> I thought that was huge. I didn't, it wasn't until I got to the States that I realized, Jesus. <laughs> this, you know, I, the reality set in really quickly. But it was cool because I got, I got in to Berkeley and I was the lowest man on the totem pile. My first gig in Berkeley, I, I, I was lucky because there was, ever hear of Herb Pomeroy? Well, Herb was one of my teachers, as was Ray Santisi. And Ray, the piano player, well, Ray Santisi was, was really helpful to me. And we, we got along fine. And, and all we did at, at, at lessons was just talk. I mean, I, and I had a classical teacher. I think his name was Alfred Lieb. I'm not sure about that. But it was a, it was a, I'd never studied piano in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm, he's got me playing the Chopin etudes. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I, but I worked my ass off because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do it. I thought, fuck, I better, I better, better do this shit. So I, I worked like a demon and I was getting pretty damn good. And I didn't know it at the time. And I, that's the vibe that kind of helped me get through so much stuff there. I didn't know any better. <laughs> Although he had earned a scholarship, Mike Knox's tenure at Berklee College of Music didn't last too long. I dropped out of school because what happened, I went to race Antizzi and I was, I was, as I said, I was washing dishes, so I was experiencing life at the bottom of the thing. I had no idea that there was such a class society in America, none, none at all. And I was at the bottom of the, bottom of the pile. 
And I was, I, I was just getting ready to go to, to my lesson, my piano lesson, to tell Ray, hey, man, I'm going up to Canada. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I can't handle this shit. You know? Before I could get the words out of my mouth, he says, hey, Mike, are you interested in playing jazz four nights a week? I said, what? I had this gig four nights a week playing jazz at, at a bar with a grand piano, and the club owner was a jazz fan, and it was a great little trio. I mean, a really experienced trio, except for myself. And we just played jazz. And that's that, that's where it all started for me after that. It's just the all And I got this gig with Lenny's on the Turnpike. And so I got to play with everybody. I mean, it was amazing. And, and, and at the same time, I'm hanging out with, with T Tony Williams, because he was a friend, you know, and, and Sam Rivers. And I didn't know any bit. It was just, I was just having fun, having great fun. I wanted to learn, I wanted to play jazz. I wanted to be a jazz piano player. I wasn't, I was stupid. I didn't know about study. I didn't have it. I left school at 14. <laughs> I knew nothing about any of that shit. Lenny's at the Turnpike was the place. See, the guy who used to run, I think his name was Lenny Sokolov. And, and Lenny just uh, must have dug me. You know, because I got, that was my gig. So you're in the house band at Lenny's on the Turnpike. You already mentioned getting to meet Tony Williams. And you also struck up a friendship with another incredible jazz musician, Sam Rivers. Well, Sam, for some reason, we, we I'm not even sure where, where I met Sam or what, at what stage. It must have been pretty early on, and it might have been through, through Tony. I'm not, but again, I, I don't re, re, clearly remember when I met Sam, but I had a lot to do with Sam over the years. And him and his wife, B, Beatrice. You know, we actually went to, we, he, he took me to uh, uh, Hong Kong. We did a 10 day stint in Hong Kong with, with Warren Smith on, on the, and Dave Holland. I had all this background with playing, obviously, and I could play. And then we got this, I got this call to do this gig at a club called Connolly's Stardust Room in the Black District. It was just a really funky little club, but they used to have jazz policy. And it was like, it was a black club. It wasn't a jazz club per se, or maybe it was. But because I, mean, I saw Herbie Hancock there, I saw, uh, uh, the alto player, the, uh, oh my God, yes, out to lunch, you know, Eric Dolphy, all those, all those, all those, all those cats came there. And, and I got this call to play there. And why did I get the call? Because Hal Galpin, Hal Galpin was also a Boston cat. And Hal, Hal, he, his psychiatrist, he was going, he was going, he was being, going, going to a shrink at the time. And the, and the, and the, Hal didn't really want to play this piano because it was a spinet piano. You know the spinet pianos, those little tiny pianos they have in people's houses? That's the piano they had. And so at this club, it was a really funky little place. And I heard Herbie play this piano. I heard all these great cats play it, you know. And it was a week, the gig was for a week. Anyway, Hal calls me up and he says, because we, we were buddies, he said, hey, Mike, he says, we want to do this gig for me. I don't want to do it. I got this thing with this guy, Yusuf Latif. And my psychiatrist says I shouldn't do it. My psychiatrist says I shouldn't do it because it might mess up my playing or something. <laughs> and I said, sure, Hal. And me and Yusuf just hit it off, just like that. It was like, wow. 
And so check this out. This is so that that was cool. You know, we really hooked up, and that was just a week's gig. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm living in Boston, but I'm, I'm I'm a student, and I'm not supposed to be working. You know, I'm not supposed to be working at all. You know. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, I I was a little bit nervous, and I got this gig with Sam Rivers Quartet at a place called uh, Provincetown. And when we got to Provincetown. They, they showed us around and the local police chief said, said oh well you know we, we get a lot of local we get a lot of illegal immigrants this way you know <laughs> he said they come here and they, they don't have the right papers and he starts showing us around the jail I thought fuck and then I realized because I was there illegally and and my visa had run out so I started getting so I, I had a girlfriend at the time and I called her up and I said hey Dodo you got to help me out. For, for, and she was totally into it. She said, I, I got to get married. So we got married. It was one of those things. And then on my wedding night, on my wedding night, the night I, I'm lying in bed with my, my bride, and the phone goes, and it's Yusuf Latif asking me to come on the road with him. And our, our first gig was live at Peps. We, we recorded. I'd never, I'm just, I'm just a little green little greenhorn. And my first thing is like, was Yusuf's biggest record. That was the biggest record he ever made, live at Peps. <laughs> and then I was on the road for the next year, playing all the black, playing the Chitlin circuit. That's Mike Knock on piano playing with Youssef Latif on the song number seven from the album Live at Peps. Mike, how long did you stay with Youssef? About a year or more. I mean, I mean, he was he got really disappointed with me because I mean, after a while, man, it's not you know. I mean, hey, I, I got a bit tired of just playing the blues all the time. Not that he, not that we just did that. We did a lot of stuff, but it's a different vibe. And and I had these, I had problems with the drummer who actually we we ended up being really good friends afterwards James Black but he we just had a thing he didn't like me I didn't like him we just kind of we, we were matter of fact they had to t- tear us apart once we were on stage at Shelley's manhole 
and we're actually getting onto it, getting into it on stage in the middle of the music. <laughs> and then after playing with Yusuf, you did some gigs with the Jazz Messengers. Yeah, that was an unfortunate thing too because I mean, I really, I really wanted to learn how to play bebop, and I'm I'm one of those people that is particularly at that point. That's how I learned the music by playing it. I didn't know about studying like someone else, but I played it. And the thing is, I got the gig with art, you know, through Reggie, a bass player called Reggie Johnson. Keith Jarrett had been doing the gig, and the band really didn't dig Keith because Keith was a really arrogant little prick. I got to say that he really was. I mean, he's a great player. I love Keith, but you know, like I mean. You could, he was so arrogant, and 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 they'd had enough anyway. I guess they'd either fired him or he'd quit. And that's when the thing came up, and they said, "Hey, you want to, you want the gig?" I said, "Great! Are you kidding me?" So the we, I only did two gigs with the band because what happened? I got hepatitis. They had to put me in the in the hospital, and it was such a drag because while I was in hospital, the, the band manager came to me and he says, "Man, look, we had to get someone else because we're we're on, we're on the road." So they got Chick Corea. So I was sandwiched in between Keith and Chick. Mike, there was one other story from your early days in New York that I found kind of interesting. One day you're in your loft and your phone rings and it's Sonny Rollins offering you a job. And the offer comes right at a time that you are leaving for a somewhat inconsequential jazz tour. This is one of those examples of a sliding doors moment in life. So tell me about getting that phone call from Sonny. Well, it was great because I mean, you know, Sonny and I, you know, I'm, I played a concert opposite him about six months, no, six years ago, I think. At the Sydney Opera House, really, my my trio, because uh, I, I, I'm I'm still so out of it. But it was Sonny Rollins and my trio, but he wasn't playing with us. We were separate, you know. But and, and you know, because he, hey Mike, how are you? You know, it's like the cats. Back in the day, Sonny had once said to me way back when that he was going to call me for a gig. This was before they had answering machines. I spent two weeks at my house waiting for the phone to ring, and I had to get, finally had to go out and get some food. He never called, but he did call a few times, and and one time Sonny's on the phone. I'm I'm on a fourth floor walk up, and Richie Coles is downstairs tooting his horn to take me to Boston, and Sonny Rollins is on the phone saying he wanted me to go do a tour of the of the colleges with him and uh, uh, Al Foster and and Bob Cranshaw, and I had to say no. And then, and then, but but then after that, then I was really up, upset about that. Richie said I should have just said, you know, go for it, you know, and good good on him because Richie was a jazz fan, you know. But but then I I got an offer to kind of uh, rehearse with Sonny, and so I go to you know I go to this rehearsal and, and it's Sonny's when he was in his calypso phase, and to be really honest, man, I didn't like much as I love Sonny, I thought he's great. Obviously, man, he's my idol. But the band wasn't a great band. It was it wasn't a bad band. But they're playing this music. I had a band with Michael Brecker at the time. You know, playing some hip shit. You know, and we're playing all this calypso music and shit, and it's like not much space for me and all the rest of it. So anyway, I I, I do the rehearsal and I don't hear anything. And I run into the guys in the band on the street and they say, Mike, are you are you coming? I said, What are you talking about? I said, I haven't heard from Sonny. And so I hadn't heard from Sonny, but they were going getting ready to tour somewhere. And anyway, the next day, I get a call from, and the, it's, it's his phone is kind of funny. There's a TV in the background, and it's, it's a, Mike, this is Sonny. I said, what? 
He said, no, this is Sonny Rollins, you know, okay. So I'm sitting, yeah, so I, I listen. Finally, Sonny comes out with it and says to me, he says, what did you think of the music? <laughs> what can I say to Sonny Rollins? Oh, oh Sonny, I'm sorry. I didn't know whether I was on the gig. I mean, I've got to, I'm leaving town or some fucking thing because I did not want to do that gig with, because it would have been too disappointing. After living in New York for a while, I the, I got this gig with a guy called John Handy, and it was a great band actually. So what what happened is uh, I'm in New York, and John calls up out because I was kind of you can imagine I'm a white guy on the scene getting a bit of attention, and people starting to notice me. That's how it happened in those days. It wasn't any about self promotion or anything like that. I mean, you got hey. You, this cat can play, give him a call. That's how I got all my gigs in New York. And by the way, when I was in New York, I never, ever act successfully auditioned for a gig. All the gigs I got, I, people would just call it, you want the gig? With Dion, Warwick, whoever it was, it was just a call. Stanley Tarantino, I mean, and, 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 and that was it. Mike Knock on piano with the John Handy Concert Ensemble from the 1968 Columbia LP, Projections. That's the song Three in One. Mike, in the late 60s, you also jumped into another project called The Fourth Way, which was a groundbreaking ensemble that were pioneers of a genre that would come to be known as fusion. So tell me how The Fourth Way came together. Well, what happened with The Fourth Way? I was in uh, New York and I met Michael White. And we talked about getting a band together. You know, we just got along for some reason. And we, you know, and, and anyway, so uh, that's right. I, I'm, I'm still with John Handy. You know, that's a, so that was the connection with Michael because he used to work with, with John Handy. And so that's, so he, he was connected. So I, I, I don't know how we got together, but we did. And anyway, so when I came out to San Francisco, John, John had taken me to, uh, John Handy had, Taken me to Europe, which is where I met Lily and Terry and all that, and and you know, and we just had a quartet, and anyway, so then John, you know, and I was living on the Lower East Side, and and John said to me, he says, look, come to come to California. I said, fuck, kidding me? Of course I'm going to go to California, getting out of this place, you know, getting out of New York and the Lower East Side. So I'm I'm back and I'm in now I'm in California, and uh, Michael's there, and so we said, hey man, maybe we can put that band together now. Because he was, I think he was still playing with John and he wasn't happy about it, but we wanted to do our own shit. And Eddie Marshall, who I'd been playing with with Dion Warwick, you know, who I'd always gotten along great with Eddie Marshall, the drummer, 
so much of this is about space, about, you know, uh, where you live. And he lived in, you know, he wasn't on the New York scene so much. He was from Boston, you know, some small town in Boston, Springfield, I think. But, you know, he, and he played with a lot of cats, but it was a different scene. But he was with, I got him on Dion's gig and we, we really hooked up. And so I said, hey, we've got the drummer, we've got the violinist. And then we just started looking for a bass player. And and we had and we had we got a manager and all that, and that's when the fourth way kind of started. James Leary was our first bass player, but James was a bit 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 square, but you know, lovely guy, great player, but a, but bit 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 conservative. And and this don't forget, this was the age of like uh, Aquarius. This was the age of hippies and all that shit, you know. And so Ron McClure had been working with Charles Lloyd. He decided to come, I mean, he, he, he wanted to come or some, somehow, I'm not sure whether I asked him or whatever, but anyway, he came, he came back from New York and joined the band in San Francisco. The fourth way was born. <laughs> title track from the debut album by The Fourth Way, The Sun and Moon Have Come Together, released in 1968 on Harvest Records. And Mike, the sound that you guys were playing with here on this Fourth Way record pointed to some real exciting new directions that jazz would end up taking in the coming decade. Well, to be really honest, I never liked the term fusion. To me, we were a jazz band. Fusion came came along and, and then, you know, I mean... It was never fusion, well, you could call it fusion, but it, it had a different meaning in those days.
Mike Nock with The Fourth Way from the band's self-titled second album, the song Every Man's Your Brother. The Fourth Way would go on to release one more final album called Werewolf, recorded live at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1970 before disbanding. And that, that broke up because Michael White got off at a gig. He, 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 I think the seeds were sown when we did that, that trio gig in, in Germany which he was really upset and hurt that I didn't include him on it. Well, I didn't want him on it. I wanted a different kind of thing. And that's not what he could do, you know. And I think that must have been, and you know, hey, I'm, a, I'm an arrogant, know-nothing young man, you know. It was, it was, but so that's what happened, you know. And, and I think he really harbored a bit of resentment. And then uh, Ed Michelle from uh, the record company, which one, which was the record, I can't think of the name of the record company. But anyway, Ed Michelle, the producer, uh, he kind of got the idea to, to have give Mike his own thing. And of course, that was the end of it then. And that's cool. That was totally cool. I mean, you know, but, but you know. So I went to New York and I was accepted with open arms because, again, I was from San Francisco, which was a little bit of fresh air to some of Like I had a friend in, called Dwayne Tetford in New York. And he was—he had been in San Francisco. I didn't know—I don't know whether I knew him in San Francisco, but he was a, a hippie, an ex-hippie, and he owned a club called Sweet Basil's. That was his club, and so of course I, I got carte blanche. I, I could work there as often as I wanted to with whoever I wanted to, you know, back in the day. Mike, the trio gig that you referred to in the last segment is actually the next record that I wanted to ask you about from 1971, and it's called Between or Beyond. The record is credited to the Mike Knock Underground, and it was released on the legendary German jazz label MPS. This is an incredibly rare and deeply funky cult classic early 70s jazz funk album that I became aware of about 25 years ago and unfortunately I've never been able to track down a copy <laughs> and the ones I've seen listed online routinely run about $500 or more so for now I suppose I'll have to just stick with the mp3s but regardless this is an amazing record and I encourage all of our listeners here to seek it out online and give it a listen so Mike let's talk about it I'm kind of obsessed with this album and admittedly I'm also a huge fan of the MPS label so tell me how this record came together with Eddie Marshall and Ron McClure from The Fourth Way. What happened is we, were, we did a little tour. We were in, we were in after, after Montreux. And we were kind of the, the flavor of the month. You know, everyone was talking about us, you know what I'm saying? You know, because we'd, we'd made a bit of an impression in Montreux with that, that last record. 
It's like this is a new thing or whatever the fuck it was. So anyway, so we got this 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 little tour, and then I got this call from this guy um, to kind of make this record in Germany. So we went to Germany, and there's a whole man. There's a there's a whole books worth of stories about this, but we're not going to get into that. But it was really quite interesting. So we find ourselves in Germany, but I didn't want to do. I wanted to do it as a trio uh, because I just didn't want to have. I wanted something different, you know. And so, uh, so there we are in the studio, and, and which is which is cool, you know. And um, yeah, so we made the record, but it was a, was a man. The the recording, everything about it was so fraught. It was so difficult. We had so many problems, not the, just just personal problems that we had to deal with. I mean, because we were all a bunch of dopers and everything else. And it was, at those days. Look, look, we we went to this town called Villingen, which was actually the, a town, and where with that was a, the name of the town. And and, and we, we arrive at this town, and we, I don't, I've never look, I've never studied nothing, you know. So I'm I'm taking care of everything. We've got a car full of black and white people, girls and guys, and everything. We're, we're a bunch of hippies, and at that time there was a really strong anti-hippie, anti-American feeling, I guess, you know. And I didn't know this shit. And we're driving. And we get to this little town that's like a walled village with the moat. And we go into the town. It's all, you know, the, those German places. It's all kind of cobblestones. And it's like back from another century. And people were shaking their fists at us. Man, they look at it. And it's like, oh, my God, what are we doing here? Because I didn't understand anything. I didn't even understand the language or anything. It was all, and I'm out of my mind. We'd be, we'd be driving, you know. I know what, we'd been stopped at the border on the way there. Uh, from Switzerland to Germany, and we'd had some hashish in the car, and I was so nervous, but I'd eaten it all. <laughs> and by this time, it started to come on, and I don't know, I'm, I'm the one that's supposed to be looking after everybody, and I'm out of my mind. Look. So we get to the hotel that we're supposed to be staying at, and the guy says to us, no, there's no place here for you guys. Sorry. And he didn't even say sorry. Just said, no, there's not, you, you won't find anywhere anywhere close to here where you guys can stay. And then I explained my situation. Well, I think my girlfriend explained to him, hey, by this, we're here to do a gig. We've, we've been hired. And so he managed to put his, book us into some place way out of town somewhere. And it was pretty scary for me because I mean, I'm, I'm out of my brain. And my, I had both my uncles had been in German prisoner war camps. You know, so I'm, I'm freaking, you know. I'm thinking, oh, fuck, they're going to kill us here, you know. I mean, seriously, it was really out. They didn't. E we didn't even have a room for Michael White. Michael White had to sleep in the corridor in the hotel. I mean, this is this is really some. And you know, we're all high and shit. It's like, oh my god, what? I'm out of my mind. So the next day, we go to the studio and we leave the the girls back at the place. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of the session, and there's an urgent call from the hotel. The police are on their way <laughs> because because one of the I think it might have been Eddie's partner. She had refused to get out of bed, you know, because I mean, in those days, hey, you're 10 o'clock, you got to get out of bed, you got to evacuate the room. And she, and she said, I'm not going. So she just stood up on the, this big double bed with a with a, a bottle of Coke and she made it fizz and everything. And she was spreading Coke all around the room and jumping and yelling. At, and the police are there in German. This is years ago. And they said, well, they're going to arrest you. We're trying to make a record.
Mike Knock Underground with the song Denim Dance from the 1971 album Between or Beyond. Mike, one of the things I love about your playing on this record and during this era as a whole is that you would run your Fender Rhodes piano through effects pedals, including ring modulation, which gave it this sort of spacey, distorted sound. And I don't know, it just hits my sweet spot. Absolutely. I mean, because the thing is, I was—I never considered myself a very good piano player, ever, ever. And I, and I still don't, but I, I, I can fool a lot of people. I realize now, anyway, that we get caught up on this whole thing. It's, you know, because I mean, someone like a Keith comes along, he, he can demolish everybody. And that's cool. But it's not, that's not what playing jazz is about. Playing jazz is about something else, you know? I mean, if you're a good piano player, it's great, you know, but hey, you don't have, it's, it's not what, as a guy, uh, uh, Teddy Ross, a singer from, from, from San Francisco once told me, hey, Mike, he says, it ain't what you, it's how you. another track from the 1971 album by the Mike Knock Underground. This one's called The Squire. To me, the whole thing about jazz and this music that I'm playing, whatever you want to call it, it's about self-expression. And I try to allow myself full reign to just express myself, which doesn't, you know, but, but at the same time, I used to refer to myself as a populist which means to me that I'm really interested in communicating with people. And that's that's why I like to play free. But I must say that I used to have those experiences more when I was in the U.S. because I was around cats that were more compatible to experiencing that also. And I used to be able to transcend myself much more than I... Nowadays, it's okay. It's cool. See, it goes back to when, again, when I was really young in, in New Zealand and when I was first learning how to play... What I could do back then is I could sit at the piano and I could play all this stuff and I wouldn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing, but it, was, it, it seemed to work, you know. It's almost like a trance. It's not, though, but you know what I'm saying? It's almost, that's, that's what the whole thing's all about to me, at least thinking that I'm communicating with people, whether I am. You know, that, that to me, is, it's very important to make a connection, to play music. That's why a lot of my friends... All over the world, you know, they get into their little trips. They may be brilliant musicians, but to me, being brilliant is only part of the, the situation. The thing is about communicating. How can I communicate what I'm feeling or what I want to communicate to the listener? Now, that's the essence of it all for me, communication. It's not for, it's not for everybody, but that's what it is for me, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. 
Mike, jazz ensembles can often vary in size and instrumentation. How do you select the right ensemble for a particular composition, and how do you work with musicians to bring your vision to life? Well, that's something that I've dealt with all my life to some extent, and a lot of it depends on the on the other musicians. Some people are more compatible that and more amenable to that situation than others. You know, uh, you know. So it's like you've got to choose the right people, and that's one of the criteria. Not that they're, not that they're great musicians. That's part of it, hopefully. But it's more about their compatibility, how open they are, and 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 that's it. You know, because it's it's really making music to me is really a shared experience, ideally. In the mid '70s, Mike became a successful studio musician in New York, playing on dozens of sessions and albums, and then eventually returned to Australia. Mike, you've had a very diverse and extensive discography as a band leader. I'm wondering, is there an album or project that holds a special place in your heart? And if so, what makes it significant to you? There is a couple, actually. There's two. One is the Michael Brecker, Mike Knock, In, Out, and Around. That's Michael Brecker at his best. Man, this is way, this is, this is, you hear all the Michael Brecker shit in, you know, before it became, this is this is the first time that he played a lot of that shit on this record. It's a great fucking record, man. It really is. George Morass said it was his favorite record. That's what he told me last time I saw him when he was still alive. In, Out, and Around, it's called, with Al Foster, George Morass, and Michael Brecker and myself. So that, that's one of my favorite records. And the other record that doesn't seem to get any attention at all these days is Omdas on ECM. But I tell you, man, it, in Australia, that really... T- Matter of fact, 
40 years after the event. We just did a big concert, uh, two big concerts with it last year with another trio, of course, not to, not, to, not with Gomez and, and uh, Christensen, but with a couple of local people. Actually, I had a Korean drummer, a young lady Korean drummer, and this fantastic young bass player, because it needs a good bass player. And we did a couple of gigs, big gigs here. Some lovely sounds here from piano player and composer Mike Nock. The first song we heard in the set was called Break Time from the album In, Out, and Around by the Mike Nock Quartet, released in 1978. And the track we're hearing here comes from the 1981 album Ondas called Doors. Mike, can you discuss a little bit of your creative process when composing a new piece of music? How you start, what drives your choices in melody, harmony, and rhythm, for example? It's all an emotional response to things. And I'm still writing music, but it takes me a lot longer nowadays to write music. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why it takes me so long. I have too many options. Whenever I do anything, the options are endless, which is why I'm more and more just playing free, just making it up, even with bands. I have a, I have a young band at the moment, I have had for the past year, that have been coming to my house at least once a week They've, even, they've been to the States and all this shit. They've, they've got really successful careers. They're only young. They're, they're all at least at least 60 years younger than I am. Can you believe that? You know? But it's, it's, and they're all really, really talented players. So, so the thing is, I'm really kind of just trying to find a, a, a music that's mutual. And they, 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 of course, they, they want to just play my music, which is great. But I'm curious to know. What 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 other people like? Because it's very easy. I think one of the big problems with, with the jazz is become kind of uh, elitist in that sense. You know, a lot of jazz has become really elitist. And the thing is, it's it's a really easy trap to fall into. But I don't want to be like that. And maybe look, I mean, I've got all kinds of matter of fact. This is just an aside. I've just started practicing again. I've, I've literally. I mean, I've I've just finished a solo record. But I wasn't practicing for that. I haven't been practicing for a long time. But I've decided in the last few weeks, man, i got to do some practice because I'm getting a little bit of attention now. And I said, hey, man, I've got to up the level of my playing, actual physical playing. And my age is about physicality. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've got to, got to move my fingers. Hey, the only way I can do that is by practicing scales. I never practiced scales, but not for 30, 40, 50 years maybe, you know. Now I'm doing all that shit. And it's paying off, already it's paying off, because I did a gig last weekend and everyone's saying, wow. So it's just interesting.
great live recording here of a jazz ensemble called Almanac, which featured Mike Knock on piano, Cecil McBee on bass, saxophonist and flutist Benny Maupin, and drummer Eddie Marshall. Recorded at Columbia University in New York City and released in 1977, that's a bit of the song Double Split. One of the things in the U.S. that I noticed is that, you know, we never spoke about the music, the cats I played with. We never spoke about the music. You never did. You just spoke about, the, you know, in Australia, I find I have to more and more. But less and less, cats, you know, once, once the basic uh, parameters are set, it's, it's, it's an understanding. And you take it from there, you know. And it's an emotional understanding, you know. Just give me some space. Listen. And I, one of the things like this young this band that I've been working with, the drummer is, is really, really, really talented young drummer. And I think he, but he, it's their call. They come to me. I didn't ask them to come to my house. And I used to get on this case quite a lot. Man, you're not hearing what I'm doing. You're not listening to me. You know, and that's what it really comes down to, just listening to people, really listening. Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself and particularly listen to yourself in connection with the cats you're playing with. Listen to the totality of the music. Some newer music here from pianist Mike Knock, a lovely song called Windows of Arquez from the album Hearing, released in 2023. Mike, your piano playing has so many wonderful characteristics to me, including harmonic exploration, expressive phrasing, and a melodic sensibility. And in songs like the one we're hearing here from your most recent album, I think a lot of your music also fundamentally embodies a pastoral quality. Do you think growing up in a kind of mystical, breathtaking, picturesque environment like New Zealand influenced your sound? Yes, I do, because I've, I grew up with that. And I do, I've, I've always felt that about my roots in New Zealand. It's not a conscious thing, but, I, but it is conscious in the sense of a feeling, absolutely. Ondas, the record you know, that I did for ECM, that's got a picture, that's, Ondas means waves. And, and it's a very, that's New Zealand to me, that's what that is. And so if you, if you get a chance to listen to one, it's not that I've tried to describe that, but that's basically what it is. It's about waves. And that's probably one of the reasons why it, it really hit a chord here in Australia. Mike, you taught at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music until about 2018. So I wanted to talk about your work in music education. Can you share some of your thoughts on the importance of music education and perhaps how it can impact the future of jazz? Mm, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that one. I mean, to me, to be really honest, I think the whole education thing has gone, taken the wrong path. But because it's, a, but you might say that about university studies in general. You know what I'm saying? Because it's about it's, it's become an intellect. It's become a, a business. Business first. It was never, music and everything to do with it was never about a business for me, which is another one of the reasons why I didn't ever have the success that I could have had because I wasn't interested. 
you know, and to be really honest, I've got to say, Justin, even though I've never been interested in business, but again, Justin, just by the way, so many of the teachers really aren't into it. We've, we've come up with a bunch of teachers that have learned all the lessons, but they haven't learned the most important one. They are teaching without really being realizing. That's what I used to say to students, don't teach, fucking learn how to play first. Mike, as I mentioned earlier, your most recent record was released in July of 2023 on ABC, and that's called Hearing, which is a beautiful record of you at the piano. Are there any other upcoming projects or performances that you're excited about? Well, the, before Hearing, I've done a couple of records with this group called This World, which is a, a local band, and it's a really pretty good band. Matter of fact, we had quite a big local hit with our first recording, uh, maybe even our second, but it's called This World. Uh, and I often get the credit as being the leader. I'm not the leader. It's, it's actually a cooperative band. We all write music. We all contribute to it. And that was and, and was really well recorded and all the rest of it. And, that, that kind of, and that's just us doing our thing, which is, again, what I'm talking about, about the, the group, the music being a reflection of the, of the shared uh, awareness of the group, you know. And the same thing, the same thing with the solo record. I wasn't prepared for a solo record. I mean, I haven't been practicing. I haven't been doing anything. And I was going through some kind of weird uh, psychological, no, physical, not mental shit, I guess. You know. Anyway, I've done this record, and I, the, this is a funny thing. I, I, you know, there I am in the studio. It, it's a big studio. It's like a concert hall with my choice of piano, and I, I chose this piano. It's a beautiful concert grand, really exquisite. And the guys recorded it incredibly well. So anyway, uh, and, and because it came about because I made a record 30 years previously in that same studio with a different piano, of course, and, a, and I had an audience. But that record became like a chart topper in Australia called uh, Touch. Yeah, it was a chart topper, literally. <laughs> it's a, and, and so this, 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 this ex-student of mine calls, I said, Michael, I want you to make this record and it's going to work out because it's like 30 years since the last one, blah, blah, blah. So I find myself in the studio. My wife's away and all the rest of it. And I'm, I haven't been practicing. And I'm a little bit, to be really honest, I'm not really that comfortable. I mean, I'm trying to be, but, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not doing, I'm not practicing. I'm not doing any of the shit I should be doing. The shit that you would normally expect one to do when you're uncomfortable. So I make the record and... You know, I'm not. I'm kind of got mixed feelings about it, but I kind of liked the fact, that because my friend loved it, the, the the producer, he loved it. He thought he just couldn't stop playing it. As some people, when they actually get into it, do. I don't think my playing so good, but it captures something. It captures something, and that's what the shit's all about. We hear too much music that's so well played, 
we don't hear a lot of music that actually captures those rare essences of music. You know, so I think this does, and that's so that. So the thing is, what my story was: we did the record, and uh, you know, I thought, oh man, I didn't play very well in that. And I said, man, can you can you give me another shot? So that's I've already been in the studio for two days, and and so the guy manages to organize another shot for me with the piano. And but so what happens? <laughs> I do the record. And 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 there it is, and I'm really unhappy with. So I said, "Man, is it possible? Can I go in and have another shot at it?" He says, "Sure." So they organize another session for me, okay? You know, and and I go back and I play, and actually the playing's much better. My playing, of course, by now I'm, I've psyched myself out, and my playing is much better. But nobody, including me, thinks the music is is as good. So what? So what we get is what what we had, just <laughs> what's and all. Had a pretty damn good life, and I'm still doing okay without even trying to. That makes any sense, you know. I've never had to worry about money, and it's, and, I, and I come from no money. I don't have any fucking money, but I'm fine. I'm always fine. I've got my own house. I own, you know, I've got all this shit. Uh, you know, just like man, I've just landed on my feet every step of the way. And why have I done that? Because people have helped me, and I've always tell people, hey man, to me it, it's. I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for people helping me do stuff. People just always give me things. Even even nowadays, people are giving me things. Like I've just come up. I just did that solo record. That was not not my idea. Even it was a student's idea. Hey, would you, do you want to do a solo record with this thing? I said, sure, man. Well, it's already up for an Aria Award, which is the biggest prize you can get in Australia. Well, it probably won't win it, you know, because but nonetheless, it's up for it. Mike, it's been a pleasure to have you on Sounds Visual Radio today. Thank you so much for joining me on your birthday. So happy birthday. Thanks for sharing your story with me. And I hope we got to give you some of the recognition that you truly deserve today. You did. You did a great job. And, and good questions. Good questions. And I felt that you, you're real, you know, and that's great. Well, go enjoy the rest of your birthday. And I wish you all the best, man. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you. Have a great day. Sounds Visual Radio is a production of Sounds Visual Media. All past episodes of the podcast can be found archived anytime at soundsvisualradio.com. Follow us on Instagram at Sounds Visual Media and on Facebook at Sounds Visual PDX. And lastly, the email for the podcast is soundsvisualradio at gmail.com. <laughs>